Ed, sure. don't you know Celeste never has a plan B? She has a plan A, and then there's losing. And that's it. That's all there is. There's no plan B. Ever. Well, I've been you're assuming she had a plan A in the first place. <laughs> she did. She was going, I always have a plan she, A. She, she does have a plan. She's great with plan A. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, will we gain gold, castles, workers, or chickens? Only the dice will tell in the Castles of Burgundy card game. Next, our factions battle through the dim, gaslit streets of old London in Sorcerer. And lastly, we cut deals the old-fashioned way with smiles and lies in Diplomacy. I'm your host, Celeste DeAngelis. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. Hi, I'm Evan Bernstein. A good diplomat observes much, acts little, and speaks softly, according to Ben Franklin. Hi, I'm Ed Povlitis, and I can support your move into Serbia if you can support my move on Greece. Hi, I'm Mike Grenier, and London is mine. Hey, explorers. Great news. We are now bringing you even more episodes with our new midweek side quests, which you will find right in your regular Witch Game First feed. Guys, tell us what they're going to be about. We will be interviewing professionals within the industry for an in-depth look into the craft of game production. You know what? I'm going to call game designers we've met at our expeditions and find out how their creations are coming along, and I'll share the conversation with everyone. And Joe has been off delving into the archives to research the history of games. So there'll be lots more Witch Game First podcasts for you to love starting this week. And if you get a chance, please leave us a rating or a review or a Facebook post or a tweet or an Instagram or a retweet or an article or a shout out or mention us down at the local gaming store or anywhere you go. It really helps others find the show and it helps us grow. Thanks for listening, guys. Our first game up this week is The Castles of Burgundy, the card game. Designed by Stefan Feld, published by Ravensburger in 2016. Number of players, 1 to 4, ages 12 and up. Playtime, 30 to 60 minutes. Okay, when we spotted this game all dressed in red, what were our first thoughts? Evan? A dice game with no dice. The cards are the dice. I'm confused already. Mike? Did somebody say Burgundy? Where's my steak? Ed? All the dice and everything else is represented by cards. Even though they're kind of cute, kind of hard to roll them. The idea of building my vast baronial fortunes on whatever cards show up sounds kind of cool. But before we chat about real estate by fate, Evan, tell us how it's played. In the Castles of Burgundy, the card game, players are nobles in 15th century France growing their estates through strategic trade, clever planning, and commerce. Each turn, players will use a set of cards that serve as the dice that show which actions are available. Will you trade along the river, exploit silver mines, raise livestock, construct special buildings, or invest in scientific progress? Building sets of three matching cards in your estate will earn points and bonus points for being first. Bonus points! After five rounds of six turns each, the player with the most victory points wins the game. So this is a card game where the dice are printed on the cards. I think it's a pretty neat mechanic. Instead of having 
a set of dice you roll. The game is just 170 mini cards. These cards are so cute. They're teeny tiny cards. They fit in the palm of your hand. There's a die icon printed at the very top. So when they're in your hand, they represent your rolls. But when they're on the display, they indicate what die you need in order to either build or take that card. So my dice curse would actually be a little counteracted by this thing. Yeah, the dice are more about almost like picture matching, right? If I have a six on my card and a six up there, I can I can make use of it. Some cards have multiple dice on them, which means you can use either die to accomplish your goal or your action. If I have both a five and a six on my one card, I can use it as a five or a six. Oh, cool. So it just gives you a range. Yeah, there were interesting synergies in this game. I did enjoy being able to tweak my die numbers a little bit. That was fun. And I thought there was a nice variety of things to choose from to help you build your barony. Did you guys feel that theme of building your estate up? Did the game translate it well? For me, the cards have a really nice Euro medieval theme to them. I think the the cards do look nice. The drawings are sketches, little caricatures in a sense, but not cartoonish. Almost like the pictures you would see drawn in perhaps an old book. Someone kind of taking the, the, the time and care to put in like the little hairs of the sheep, for example. Right. Yeah. Like a, a nice little drawing of Br'er Rabbit. I thought it was adorable. And the pictures are charming and they're just the right match for little mini cards. Very cute. And I felt the theme pretty strongly. I thought there was just enough color and art to really make me feel like, okay, I'm putting together chickens and workers <laughs> and pigs and fences and buildings and castles to all build my little estate. Assemble the chickens. That's right. <laughs> no, Mike, it's chickens assemble. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, is that why it didn't work for I missed us? It. Ah. I missed the boat. Celeste, you mentioned... You enjoyed tweaking your roles a little bit and how that was accomplished is by getting the worker cards, which have the plus one or minus one symbol on it. And that's how you would turn your four into either a three or a five if you needed a three or a five instead of the four. And I enjoyed the clear symbology. The cards are very clearly written up. It's not a bunch of confusing symbols, which these types of games can run the risk of having. Sometimes a game like this will come with a separate card, a reference card for each player to refer to in order to help them figure out what the symbology is. But you don't need that with this deck. It is very straightforward. There's a bit of a rummy effect about this game where you're matching things, right? Yeah, you're trying to build sets of three to the same type of project, and that's how you earn your point. And you can use purple, the cloister cards, and wild, so you can help you, like, oh, I just need one more here, and this will fill that set for me. And those cloister cards were pretty thick on the ground. It wasn't like, oh, I hope I get one. You can you can really just go by the colors, even if you don't know what the symbology means or exactly what it is you're trying to build or get a three of. It's, it's color-based. So you need three blues. You need three light greens. You need three dark greens. And very easy to follow. I did get a little angry when people were trying to get the same match as I was. It's a little frustrating because people can come in and scoop them up before you. Yes, it's a blocking right. aspect of the game as well. You can sneak, you can grab the yellow card if you know the next player needs that yellow card. 
Yeah, there's definitely a competition here. You'll feel that because there's only five rounds in a game. And then the first thing to do each round is put out a set of cards in the display to see which ones are available. And that's it. Does he have a four? Or does he have a six? Does he have any workers? He has no workers. He can't adjust his cards. It's true. So this is important, actually. But I don't know. I have no information. I can't. No information. Ed, what with. number card do you have? Yeah, Ed. It's a what number between one and six. Yeah. Okay. And then another one is somewhere between one and six. So, is Ed, it? I really don't like the way you're playing, so I hope this screws you up. Yes, so the center area where you get to pick the cards that you're going to build your barony out of, everybody shares that shopping section. Mm -hmm. So there's only like one item of each kind. Brutal. How hard is this game to play? I think it's a relatively light to medium game. There's a little bit of symbology you need to pick up on, but it's a really a streamlined version of the classic board game Castles of Burgundy that's based on. It was released in 2011. It's from the same designer, and that had dice, real dice at the time, and hectile. Ooh. That pretty much does the same thing that you see in this game. So, Evan, what was your favorite part of this game? <laughs> I enjoyed having to fall back on my plan B. <laughs> As I've spoken about before on other episodes, I tend to have my A plan and my B plan. I had to fall back to my plan B because, Celeste, you started taking a lot of the cards I needed. I should learn better than to sit to your, you know, left. <laughs> uh, and it, and it seemed to work out. Okay. So I was, I was happy that my fallback plan kind of worked out for me. Yeah. There are a lot of options in this game. Eh, I couldn't get that pig. Maybe I'll go for that bag of gold. So it's kind of easy to turn the ship. Like you don't feel like there's a point in the game where you're completely locked in and, uh, and have no way out. No, the flow and pacing of this game are really great. It's quick moving, it's busy, and there's lots of options. There's only five rounds of three actions each, so like you got 30 actions the whole game. So build that barony fast. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and the fact that it's small, the cards themselves are small, it's a in a small box, too. Good portable game. Take it on the road with you on a flight for the family. It's Take it to the bar. <laughs> take it to the beach. <laughs> Buy it a drink. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Castles of Burgundy. Evan? Fun game. Rules are pretty easy to follow. The game pace was good. Dig it up. Ed? The gameplay has interesting choices and offers the core experience of its bigger brother and a slimmer and faster playing game. So I'll dig it up. I am a big fan of mini versions of games, and this one is no exception. Cute fast, made me feel industrious, and doesn't outstay its welcome. Dig it up. Ed, where can you find it? Castles of Burgundy, the card game, can be found at local stores and online. Retails for about 15 bucks. There's also an anniversary edition of the full game coming out soon. If you have thoughts about Castles of Burgundy, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We are at Which Game First on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our next game up this week is Sorcerer, designed by Peter Schultz, published by White Wizard Games in 2019, number of players 2 to 4, ages 14 and up. Playtime, 30 to 90 minutes. Okay, when we picked this game up off the damp cobblestones at dusk as the foghorn blew in the distance, what were our first thoughts? Ed? 
This box is clearly giving you room for plenty of expansion. I wonder what the first four heroes will bring. Evan? The streets of London will never be the same again once I release my minions. I mean, shine your shoes, governor. (laughs) (laughs) Mike? You get to Frankenstein a deck together. I'm ready. Whoa, is this a game or an art show? Mm. Hope I can concentrate on strategy with so much to look at. But before we get distracted by all the pretty picture talk, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Sorcerer, two ancient beings of great power do battle to determine which of their lineage is the strongest. Players create their Sorcerer by combining three sets of cards, a character deck, a lineage deck, and a domain deck. These are shuffled together to form your grimoire of minion, sorcery, and attachment cards. Each deck also comes with a skill card, and together they form your true name and the special abilities of your avatar. In the action phase, sorcerers take turns spending one of their six actions to summon minions, cast spells, gain energy, draw cards, or move minions. Then... They move to the battle phase, in which minions take turns attacking in each of the three battlefields. Attacks are made using a set of custom dice, but before damage is calculated, players may use omen tokens to force dice to be re-rolled. Damage is distributed either to the minions or to the battlefield itself. This epic contest continues until one sorcerer destroys two of the three areas of London and wins the game. (laughs) My minion. So it says it's in London, but uh, did anybody feel any of London feel with all those demons and stuff running around? The three battlefield cards do show images of London. True, true. And I certainly would have brought out my British affectations if I was not so busy doing two things. First of all, looking at the beautiful artwork that's all over the place on all these cards and everything. And number two, reading all of the different lines and sentences and components on each card to try to figure out how my matches and synergies were going to work out. I was Mm -hmm. way too into the mechanics of the game to get into kind of the London feel of it all. I would say the setting of London was probably the least engaging part of it. It was just mm-hmm. three little boards with tiny pictures of a London street that looked similar, even though the boards were supposed to represent different areas. And the little boards are a great little way to keep track of the damage that stunned the area. That said, holy cow, the art is truly exceptional Ooh. in this game. Yeah. And did anybody notice that the designer of the game is also one of the artists? Oh, I did not notice yep. that. Peter Schultz has an art credit uh, in this game as well as being the designer, which led me to be very curious as to exactly which parts he designed. I looked into Peter Schultz a little bit just because this game was so gorgeous. I wanted to know a little bit more. And I found this little bit here. Sorcerer was first developed in 2012 by Peter Schultz, our guy. And in 2014, he consulted with Czech and Slovak board gaming communities intensively to fine tune the mechanics of the game. In that same year, the first print and play demo version of Sorcerer was published, responding to all the remarks and feedback he received, allowing him to create both his upgraded native language demo and finally the English language version of Sorcerer. The prototype was available for a while to a wide audience as a free play testing material, And uh, after another year of intense work and listening to the game community's suggestions, he went to Essen Spiel 
to meet some of the really great board game designers and publishers there. Uh, after meeting with Rob Dougherty, who is the CEO of White Wizard Games, the designer of Star Realms, Hero Realms, not to mention a Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame player, which shows in the game for mm-hmm. sure. He joined uh, White Wizard Games as a team member and their kicks, they kickstarted the game in 2017. Smart. This game showcases its art very well because the cards are great quality. The pieces are good. Even the cardboard chits are very good quality. And there are custom dice. Oh, my. The mm-hmm. dice. Probably one of the, <laughs> the, uh, the sexual elements of the game to me. I love that there was a battle at the end of every round and that you got six actions to prepare. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. Six actions to prepare before you fight on the streets of London each round. I want to use thumb open to get more cards, but if I'm drawing cards, I'm not playing the ones I have in my hand already. And of course, mm-hmm. I need more energy to cast these. I really liked the organizational aspects of this game. In Magic the Gathering, I often feel that it's disjointed as far as how turns work, because sometimes somebody can end up throwing out 12 cards while the other guy only gets to put out one. So this felt really nicely organized to me. It sort of kept the stress level down. It felt to me that everybody was getting a fair amount of actions. And it seemed to have a lot of the intuitive elements of Magic the Gathering, where, you know, your creature has a an attack value and a defense, which mm-hmm. is, you know, located at the bottom of the card, which you kind of expect from playing Magic. But the difference is that your your creatures take damage and it stays on them. So you got to monitor that with little tokens. Yeah, there's plenty of tokens in this game. And the other one to keep track of the, are like the burning tokens or the little spider tokens that add cool abilities or hurt your cards with a little damage over time. Yeah, my minions caught fire a lot and <laughs> suffered lots of little damage as, as each round progressed. Well, that's the treat of getting these three sets of cards that you blend together to make your deck. And I really enjoyed that because they each operated differently and it means that your deck is going to be very fresh each time. I flipped over my cards, Evan, and they just mm-hmm. happened to be burninating cards. So I, <laughs> that's just what I had to do to you, light you up. Yep, and I was lit up. Yeah, it's really neat the way they combine the deck because there's in the base game, there's four different sets of the three different categories. That gives you 64 different combinations in the base set. That's the base set. Yep, and there's plenty of expansions. And I'm sure many more are planned given the amount of room there is in a box. And there's a surprising amount of synergy from choosing three different parts of your deck. Uh, They still, at least the one I picked, seem to work really well together. Another expansion they have is another battlefield. So instead of fighting in the streets of London, you can take your battle to Egypt. Ooh, neat. In looking at the Egyptian board, the play board, uh, it looks just as beautiful. So the expansions do not look like they have any reduction in quality at all. I loved the player mats. What did you guys think of your own personal play boards? I love playboards, especially ones that give you the basic information you need to play right there on the board. They were laid out in this gorgeous way. They look like you're at your own desk working your magic. <laughs> yeah, you're de- you're a demon sitting at your desk plotting somebody's demise. <laughs> you've got yeah, you've got your little you know your sacrificial bowl where you keep your chits timer. I need to get some more omens on my pentagram. I loved how organized. And how beautiful they were at the same time. 
And speaking of the Omen tokens, I thought it was a really neat touch for a dice-based game. Can't talk about Omen tokens without talking about those dice because they are intertwined. Roll the dice. If you don't like the roll, burn an Omen token and re-roll the dice roll. Or if your opponent is rolling against you and they come up with a roll, you don't like what happened on one of their die, no problem. Burn an Omen token. Make them re-roll. Those really worked in your favor, Evan. Uh, <laughs> Mike, is that right? <laughs> well, okay. So if my dice rolls weren't already bad enough, now you're going to add in a thing where my opponent can actually make me re-roll the only decent rolls that I had. That was painful. <laughs> <laughs> well, such is the fickle will of dice. Yeah. I have to say it was painful, but I think right on theme, your demon worshiping, you know, <laughs> mages that are going to try and mess with each other as absolutely much as possible. Yeah. What do you guys think of the balance of the game overall? I I mean, I saw a couple cards there that seemed a little out of whack, but in general, I think that, you know, the game plays quick enough where you're going to re-blend your decks together and different people will see those different powerful cards mixed in and it won't be so bad over time. But Evan paralyzed me with one of his cards though. Oh my gosh. I had to show this card to Ed to make sure I was reading it correctly. It seemed way too powerful. It effectively, I nulled the special abilities of all the minions in any particular battlefield by playing this one character. Now, it nullified my special abilities as well, but it really had an impact on the on the game overall. Yeah, like in many of these battle games, the timing and where you play certain cards can really shape the way the story plays out for that game. And what's neat in this game is you have minions, but then you have legendary minions, mm-hmm. and they usually have the really cool powers. Because everybody wants to get their legends out on the board. And they did genuinely feel different than the regular minions in that many cards oh, noted yeah. that you could affect minions, but not legendary minions with that particular card. Well, let's not forget, too, you have your main character, which you actually have to place on a location. And the location that they're in allows you to trigger the three special ability type cards that you start with in that location. So you have to choose that very carefully. Yeah, I really liked how it made different locations more active than others. But you could still operate within the other locations. You can still do things. It's just not as happening. I think it adds a great amount of tension having those three different battlefields because not only what card you're playing, but where are you going to play that card? Because all three battlefields are potentially important. Now, the first one to destroy two of them wins the game. So maybe you can ignore one, but you don't necessarily want to make it too easy for the other player to take it. Well, if you leave one of them unguarded and somebody puts one of their minions in there, if that minion scores a critical hit, which is like a little star on your die, uh, if they get a critical hit there, it does double the amount of damage if nobody's there to try to protect it. Yeah. So you want to do at least some protection there. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So you got to spread them out a little bit. And uh, when you're defending your location, you can take the damage that comes from your enemy and either put it on the city, which is, you know, detriment really bad in the end, or you can put it on your minions to like spread it out a little bit. Um, but if they score a crit, the, your opponent gets to put the damage wherever they want. I had a lot of fun looking at the name the building their deck gave you. Oh, yeah. Very cool names like Ariaspis, the animist of the hunted forest. Yeah, so your first set of cards that you get to pick is Ariaspes, and the next part is the Animist, 
And then the last part is of the haunted forest. So you actually create that name as you go. Right. That becomes your deck from the three smaller decks. Yep. And each piece has a, a theme which has synergy within itself. And sometimes those synergies blend really well with the other pieces you put together with it too. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Sorcerer. Evan? Sorcerer is a great looking battle card game. The card combinations are practically limitless and the dice and the dice mechanics are cool. I am going to dig this up. Ed? Now we're cooking with eternal flame. (laughs) We get the familiar battle duel setup, but with the addition of the three battlefields and an avatar, add a great layer of depth and strategy to the game. Dig it up. Mike? Although the dice continue to lay their curse upon me, I loved creating a Franken deck and finding its synergies. Can't wait to play this game again. Dig it up. This game is hands down a great looking expansion on simple card battle play. Love the neat compact boards to enhance the playscape and keep everything organized. Dig it up. Mike, where can you find this game? They've got it on the White Wizard page for 50 bucks, but if you shop around a little bit online, you can find it for a little bit less. If you have thoughts about Sorcerer, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We would love to hear from you. Our last game up this week is Diplomacy, designed by Alan B. Callamer, published by Avalon Hill Games, 1959. Number of players, two to seven, ages 12 and up. Playtime, six hours. Yeah, or more. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, when we borrowed this game from our high school media center, what were our first thoughts? Mike? There have been many friendships ruined by this game over time. Let's see how we do with it. Ed? Russia, let's join forces to take over Europe. Oh, and don't mind my discussions with England. It's just a minor trifling detail. Evan? Hey, Archduke Ferdinand, look out behind you. Too late. Here comes a world war. (laughs) Despite months of trying to avoid playing this game... Looks like these guys are finally dragging me into the negotiation abyss. (laughs) But before we test our friendships in this whisper-filled seventh circle, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Diplomacy, players represent one of the seven great powers of Europe in the years prior to World War I. Each turn, players plan their moves beginning with spring of 1901, by writing a set of orders telling their units to either move, hold, or support. With no dice, just the actions of your rivals to help or hinder your plans, you must negotiate and form alliances in order to survive. Knowing whom to trust and when to trust them is the heart of the game. The first power to control 18 of the supply centers has gained control of Europe and wins. Yeah, trust no one. That's the right answer. Trust no one. Basically. <laughs> well, you have to trust someone, because otherwise, <laughs> no, I know. you're not going to get anywhere. I don't think it's a matter of who to trust, simply when to trust them, because yes. everybody will betray at some point. Yeah. You're really always looking at what they might have to gain before you actually try to make a deal with them. And is it and what to promise them and when it's a big part of it, because you don't want to give them everything. You want to give them just enough. So that they're happy 
and help you out. Well, your promises don't really mean much, though, because it's non-binding. So you get to see if they really went through with it when they flip the action over. Yeah, that's part of the the tension in the game because mm-hmm. the first step in the game is everybody has a moment of diplomacy for a while and they talk with each other and hash out their plans in detail. And then you go to the order writing phase where everybody individually and secretly write down an order for each of their units. And then attention comes out when all these orders are read and, uh, and then find out what really happened that turn. This game is notorious for ruining friendships, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's known as one of the backstabbiest games out there. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you can say anything you want in the negotiation phase, but it's only mm-hmm. what is written on the orders that matters. And a lot of people will oh, I forgot to write that. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, my bad. I forgot we talked about that. I'd love to see somebody write. (laughs) I'd love to see somebody like record what was promised versus what happened in a game, like over the course of an entire game, just to see what the difference was. So many promises are made, and there there is no way to keep all your promises and win the game. Yeah, that's accurate. That might be an interesting challenge to uh, try to make it through the game without breaking any promises whatsoever. The simplicity of the game outside of the negotiation is, I think, the most attractive part of this game. The fact that it is very basic. You have a map of Europe. You have uh, simple instructions that you give your troops at the end of each diplomatic turn. There are only two types of units in this whole game. They're either armies or fleets. And neat part of the strategy here and the simplicity is that there will only be one unit in each region. And what does that translate to as far as strategy goes? What do you mean by that? Well, see, because there can only be one unit there, in, a, in order to overpower somebody, you need an extra unit from a whole other region to help you out. And sure, you may have an adjacent unit, but sometimes what you really need it's a help from another player. Mm-hmm. You got to rely on the allies. That's right. That's part of the negotiation. I'll say to Mike, Mike, I need your support <laughs> from your country in order for me to help take over this territory. Will you pledge your support? Absolutely, old chap. Thank you. Thank you. Can you can count on me. You can count on jolly old England. And then, okay, great. Now I'll go ahead and plan my other things and hopefully... Mike will do the honorable thing and follow through with his (laughs) pledge of support for my one unit, whether it's a fleet or an army, moving into one of the territories. Something urgent came up. Sorry about that. I had to support my own troops over there in uh, Germany. and (laughs) I'm totally exposed now. What? (laughs) Curse you. (laughs) This is very much a role-playing game. You can tell right here. You're not a... No, a traditional no D and D character in a way, but you are taking a role. You are performing the actions of that character, and you are doing it in a way that is free form. It kind of almost has a social deduction aspect to it too, because you're kind of trying to manipulate people into thinking a certain way, or find out what somebody else is thinking, so you can make the right move. Yeah, very much so, because the you no, know, you're, you're negotiating with people. You're trying to find out. Oh, okay. Is this person really going to do what I want him to do? Or are you just saying he's going to do what I want to do and going to make a deal with the other player instead? 
Yeah. And since there's no currency or anything to enforce like future decisions, it really just goes moment to moment when you're making those attack decisions. No, the only currency you have in the game is trust. Is your word. <laughs> so you may not want to be lying from turn one because that means that you're probably not going to get that player trust later in the game. Or other players because they see, okay, this person stabbed him in the back early in the game. I don't know that I can go ahead in the next round yeah. and make a deal with this person. I'll start talking to some other people who seem more trustworthy. Yeah, even if it's to their own benefit, they'll still go, well, I'm glad he stabbed that other guy in the back, but uh, I definitely can't trust him later. This game is still played in competitions. It's a World Board Gaming Championship. The winner is a role-playing acquaintance of ours, Harold. Yes, we have role. We have all role-played many times with Harold. <laughs> Yeah, he's also a devious strategist and a go champion, too. So, yeah, and a naturally soft spoken, very controlled personality. And I think that's a big factor in this game, right? Controlling your emotions. Yes, those who are practicing the art of deception must have good control. I agree with that. I think that's one of the things I liked least about this game. It is a role playing game, I'm a huge role player. But the limitations and the boxes that you had to remain in really made me uncomfortable. I'm not great with keeping my responses dispassionate, <laughs> certainly when being betrayed. And as Russia, that's pretty much they're supposed to be their shtick, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, I did play Russia. But I get it. You're playing a diplomat. Diplomats do need to be reserved. However, the limitations in what you can do as a response, I found a bit dull for a role-playing style game like this. However, working within these parameters is something that's super popular about this game, right? It's definitely something I like about the game because it strips it down to the very essential part of what the game is about, which is mm -hmm. making deals with people and manipulating their thought processes. And the fact that there's no dice rolling at all in this game was a huge blessing for me after that <laughs> painful experience over in Sorcerer. Take you made proper negotiation. Are you going to sure? stay down that way? And then, uh, well, that could be true. Uh, and the negotiation right. fade. Negotiations are over. Over, over, down. Negotiations have failed. Fire. Stop talking. Negotiations are over. You must write down your orders. Ridiculous order. And on the mess. Negotiations are over. They're over. No more talking. Negotiations. Time is up. The time for diplomacy is over. This game has been around a long time. The idea for this game, as we mentioned earlier, which was created by Alan Callamer, he was studying at Harvard, and he was studying 19th century European history under a fellow by the name of Sidney Fay. He's an American historian, and he's credited in that his examination of the causes of World War I in his book called The Origins of World War, it is considered a classic study. In the book, Fay claimed that Germany was too readily blamed for the war and that a great deal of responsibility instead rested with the allies, especially Russia and Serbia. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take that personally, Celeste. You played Russia in the game. The bottom line is, is that these are extremely complex topics and subjects. And you can't just take your, you know, one week that you spent in fourth grade learning about World War One. Yeah. Your ninth grade four paragraphs about the origin exactly. of the war. <laughs> right. Or the, the, the paragraph you looked in the Encyclopedia Britannica about it. It's much, much more complex. So 
I always thought Archduke Ferdinand sounded like it was so much older than 1901. It sounds like some kind of like ancient person. <laughs> okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury diplomacy. Ed? This name tells you the heart of the game. When you manage to outmaneuver your rivals, it feels like unlocking an achievement. While I'll dig this game up for this classic game of diplomacy and intrigue, its length and its directness will turn off many players. Mike? Should it be called diplomacy or should it just be called betrayal? Uh, It is a classic that turns friends into backstabby adversaries, and I say dig it up. Evan? This game is for the patient player. It takes careful considerations, and you have to be able to find it within yourself to break alliances. You know, backstab. If these are your tastes, great. However, not quite for me, so I'm going to bury it. Though I would play D&D for 15 hours straight, six hours of chatting with my friends about what we may or may not write down on a sheet of paper was not my cup of tea. I will bury Diplomacy. Evan, where can you find it? Diplomacy has had lots of reprintings over the years. New and used copies available in brick and mortar and online game stores, about $30. If you have thoughts about diplomacy, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. If you'd like more perks and content from our show, including exclusive episodes, and our brand new exclusive weekly podcast, Bonus Points. Burr, burr, burr. Bonus, bonus. <laughs> For just $3 a month, you can go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, please leave us a rating or a review on your favorite podcaster. It really helps others find the show. Join our chat on our Discord server. We are at which game first. Happy gaming, explorers. And enjoy your ice cream. Mmm, European domination. (laughs) My favorite flavor. (laughs) (laughs) The taste of betrayal.